0: This is episode 131 of the Creative Giants Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for listening. Larry Robertson joins me today to jam about creativity. What it is, where breakthroughs come through, the unhelpful myths that keep us from understanding creativity, the key role space and time have for the creative process, and the different modes of creativity. That's a lot of topics, I know, but hey, that's what you get when you get two thought leaders on creativity talking about creativity. And this is just the first of many shenanigans Larry and I will get into. Ready? Let's do this.
1: Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative Giants are talented Renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey.
0: Hey, Creative Giants, I'm delighted to introduce you to Larry Robertson, Larry is the eight-time award-winning author of A Deliberate Pause, Entrepreneurship and Its Moment in Human Progress, and the founder of two ventures, one for profit and one non. He is a highly respected thought leader in creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship, advising individuals and organizations across a broad spectrum. Larry is a graduate of Stanford University and Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management and a former adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. He lives in Arlington, Virginia. Larry, thanks so much for joining me on today's Creative Giant Show. You know, we were just talking before we started this conversation and we're both delightfully nervous because of, um, where it might go and how much there is to talk about just in this field of creativity and development and mindset. It's such a rich topic. And I want to start off by saying, um, to, to all my readers, that the language of men learning to speak creativity, um, is really one of those seminal books in creativity. I think, um, everyone should read it. Um, I don't have a lot of books where I say, I think everyone should read it. This book is one of those. Um, so if you are a creative giant, and if you know you probably are because you're listening to the creative giant show It's one of those books to, to pick up. Um, it's going to be on the show notes If you're getting the pulse i'm also going to recommend it either probably um next week Um, or probably in january and then back again in march when the show actually comes out. So great work on the book Um, as, as, I, as I was explaining to larry before this conversation I read a lot of books most books don't make it past the second reading, like after you do the scan and after you do it. I'm, I'm currently um, on my fifth pass of this book. Um, and that's not because it's dense or hard to read or it's not like, a, not like reading Kant or John Stuart Mill, right? It's just there's so many delightful moments of pause and, ooh, I need to think about that. Or, oh, like, mm, I'm going to chew on that one today. Um, that's just a wonderful thing. So, Larry, thanks so much for the show. And I just really wanted to shout out the great work you're doing um, with your book.
1: Well, I, I got to say, Charlie, um, I, I almost want to drop the mic and just leave it right there. That was such a, a series of compliments at the beginning, but I'll, I'll go back to your first comment when we were talking just before we started here about that just energized nervousness. I have to say, it is such a privilege to be a talker on this show along with a listener because I've been a listener for a lot of episodes and you know, I just feel very, very honored to be adding a voice to the good work you're doing and having the privilege of the people who listen to you having a chance to listen to us. So I really thank you for that. And and thanks for all the kind words on the book.
0: Great. Let's jump into the jam. Um, You know, this is your second book, but as we were talking in a previous conversation, um, I, I really want you to share the story of how you backed into creativity is the main topic that you focus on as opposed to where you where you came from. So tell us a little bit of a story about that.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, the first book for the, those of your listeners who aren't familiar with it is the title of the book is A Deliberate Pause: Entrepreneurship and Its Moment in Human Progress. And the the answer to your question really began with that book. I had spent nearly at that time 20 years in and around what I think of as the entrepreneurial universe. So I had been in in virtually every conceivable role from uh, advisor to part of a founding team, advising founding teams, funding founding teams, even helping to build community. And so as you might not be surprised, that gave me the chance to speak to audiences a lot. And I saw this pattern of all these people coming up to me after these events, individually, looking around, making sure they weren't being listened to. These are people, Charlie, who uh, they associate themselves with entrepreneurship. They either call themselves entrepreneurs, or they are in the business of, of working with and advising entrepreneurs. And what they wanted to talk about was what is entrepreneurship? So that first book was really a pull back Not just for the people who are going to read the book, but for myself as well to say, can I answer that question as well as I think I'm attempting to when when people ask it to me? And and as you not only have experienced, I know, and it's as you advise your listeners, that pulling back to get perspective, that pulling back to look at the details of what you do. Think of the people who are in those audiences. They know their stuff. They know how to do what they do very well. What they really wanted to understand was how does it fit into a larger whole and how can I make it fit perhaps better than it does right now? Is there something I'm missing? So kudos to them. And and The reason I give you the background of that story is after the first book came out, which was a little over five years ago, I spent a lot of time... Building on that base of a book, uh, creating other content, other uh, derivatives of it, having new conversations, ex- expanding on it. And it, I kept having this nagging feeling. And you know, my dad used to call it a gut feeling, and he used to always tell me to trust your gut. And I think many of us have been through this experience, not just of having that feeling, but of ignoring it. -hmm. And after I had ignored that feeling of fit or lack of fit for a long time, I finally tuned into the new question. And the new question was what's behind entrepreneurship? What's deeper down? What am I missing? And it just struck me over a series of events, not like a lightning bolt but over a series of events, that it was creativity. Creativity was at the core of everything I was doing. It was at the core of all entrepreneurship and all the entrepreneurial ventures I was advising. But it's at the core of everything, Charlie. It's at the core, as I would say, of all human progress. And so this book was really about a a digging deeper a looking to discover something outside the boundaries of of what i knew as it related to creativity and in fact it didn't even start as a book it started as a three year journey conversations research and more looking to start a nonprofit institute focused on creativity just based on the initial things i had found and the book really developed out of those conversations and and out of that research and and frankly i think what i've just told you in this story is that the biggest mistake any of us can make is to put those questions away and think that we have an answer for all time, especially when it's about topics like creativity.
0: Absolutely. I'm so glad you shared that story because, um, there's a tension I've seen from a lot of thought leaders and creative people that especially when you start in a business context, making the transition to a, um, a business or suit I want to use uh, more modern a, a context that's not specifically about business can be a hard journey, right? Because it's like, Larry, this is what you do. Like you talk about business and entrepreneurship. What are you doing talking about creativity all of a sudden? And there's this jump at the same time that I think what what I've seen, you may or may not agree with this, what I've seen is part of the challenge. And and part of the impetus for those, what does this all mean question that we see popping up across the fields is that we become so isolated in our domains of expertise mm-hmm. that we lose that lens of seeing how this fits into the context of things, right? Um, and, you know, we're, we're on, we've got a lot of similarities here in that, like, you know, I got into business because I was thinking, like, really, what's the best way? both personally, but also if I really want to help people thrive and become the best versions of themselves, what's the best way to do that? And at the time I did it, it was actually through entrepreneurship and business and transforming work, right? Because mm-hmm. we spend so much of our time in work. Um, and if we make small dents in the, in, in the happiness factors at work, we're actually making big dents in the happiness factor of people's life. Mm-hmm. Right? But you don't approach that necessarily from a Oh, like how do I make business better? It's like when you look at how do you make lives better, you end up inevitably on topics like creativity, sure, um, positive psychology, mindset, so on and so forth. So um, that's that's a lot of context. What was did you experience that tension going from a um, business advisor or sort of business thought leader to um, a mass audience topic?
1: Yeah, it, it's actually your your description was wonderful and i think far more common than we often acknowledge so you were giving the example of of your business and wanting to help people in their lives thrive and and to really i you know i just i just love the name of of everything you do productive flourishing right the, the interesting thing here is that what we're talking about is something that starts every entrepreneurial venture. It's that sense, you know, it's kind of like my, my sense of fit and the questions around it. It's that sense that there just either might be a better way or there has to be a better way or I know there's a better way, and I know that I can make not just myself better, but others better by pursuing it. So if you think, you know, I'm thinking of the the creative giants who listen to this show, whether they're in the making or they've already taken that step and they've made something. Here's the thing that I think trips us all up. We repeat that process over and over and over again. So, one of the keys to understanding creativity is that you don't boil down to a formula for all time. Instead, you're constantly revisiting it. I mean, think of the nature of a formula. A formula is made up of variables, and by their very name, they change, they vary. Even the ones that are in your equation that help you build that thing you dream of to, to the first level, they're going to change with time and circumstances, and, and frankly, you're going to change. So. To get back to your, your exact question, you bet I felt that discomfort, and there's this, there is this sense of comfort of staying within the borders of, of what you know. That's, that's the order side of us, and we all have that. But there's this other side of us that I think of as the open side of us, and we all not only want that and are drawn to it, we lean towards it. Typically, it's not part of what we do every day. We're not as open every day as, say, we are in those moments when we're first conceptualizing a business or a new book or a new way to help people or just a new way to go about living, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Over time, as we try to bring order to those ideas, some of that openness drops out of our routine. So at that moment when you have that sense of fit, either a better fit or a misfit, and you start to follow it, it can be incredibly uncomfortable because you've spent a lot of time ordering. This is So it's, it's interesting that we're having this conversation because if you think about productive flourishing and you think about your shows, they are this wonderful dance between the specific and the broad. And so, what we're really talking about here is how do you work at keeping those two in balance? Not not 50 50, not always weighted one way, you know, more and always that way and, and one way less, always that way, but this constant dance between the two. And I think it's when we, I know it's when, we realize that that's part of the mix and that there's always discomfort in it, that we actually open up to become more creative. So, that's a, that's a bit of a long answer to what you said, but, but your example highlighted it beautifully because every one of us has experienced that, including me.
0: Absolutely. You know, as you were talking about things, um, it reminds me, um, I'm going to have to go a little Greek here, but um, in, when, when the Greeks talked about wisdom, they had two different words, sophia um, from which we get the the word philosophy, right? The lovers of wisdom. Mm-hmm. I also had phronesis, right? And phronesis was actually um, we would we might call it prudence. Um, you might con- we might also call it wisdom in the moment, right? Being able to know what to do in that moment, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the challenge that we all live with. Whether we're talking about matters of virtue, whether we're talking about creativity, whether we're talking about any of these things, is understanding that um, the trick is having, I mean, the trick is not the tool set, right? Sure. The trick is knowing when to use the tool for what purpose. And I think that's where we get stuck creatively so, so many times is that we've got a tool and we're only going to use that tool and all of our problems are revolved around that tool. And we never, I th- well, we, re- we resist looking at the actual problem the tool is supposed to solve.
1: Right, I mean, wouldn't it be so easy if the tool fixed it? I, every, every one of us is drawn towards that, child. I mean, I, ju- I think, you know, you're, you're putting your finger right on the pulse of this is that creativity is something we, we not only often approach looking for, you could call it a tool or a trick, but we tend to get interested in it when we're in a pinch, so something is going wrong, or we want some good right now. And that's when we turn on the creativity, hoping that it's not, not just going to work right away, that we will suddenly be able to use the most fine-tuned version of our creative capacity, but that it's going to produce this instantaneous wonder, this lightning bolt from the sky. And it just doesn't work that way. So, so the the entire book, "The Language of Man," is approached from the opposite perspective and and to give you an example of that, rather than thinking in terms of, of formulas, you know a, a, a series of those tactics or tools. I approach the topic of creativity through a framework in this, and a very fluid one, where the pieces that make up that frame can be inserted, they can be taken out, they're meant to be adjusted to every situation. And the framework, when I, I mean, think of it that way, it's not, it's not even steps; it's habits, it's perspectives, it's ways of looking at things. It doesn't mean we never boil down to something that's tangible, and something that we might think of as a tactic or to a formula that's that's right for a particular time. But it's saying that if we want to understand creativity, we should think less about the output, the thing that ends up at the end, and instead where it begins and the process that it flows through. And I think when we turn our attention there, then those tactics and tools and things of that nature actually have some impact. And when they don't, we care less. And so we can move on to what is working.
0: Yeah, you know, I wanted to pull back another feature of your your journey, um, and and tied to something I've been thinking about for about I don't know three weeks now, um, and maybe maybe less long. It doesn't matter how long, um, but. The, the working concept I have for it is slow magic, right? Slow magic. So we, we have Liz Gilbert's book out there, Big Magic, right? Which is talking about um, the way in which creativity finds us and, and moves through us and things like that. But um, the, the conversation came because I was talking to one of my clients mm-hmm. and um, well, I articulated then um, the, the tension the client was facing was he realized that with the fast paced pulse of creativity that there is now, that there just was not the amount of room that he needed to um, to work through what he needed. He needed to be in the quest of creativity rather than the, like the destination itself or rather than the, that end point. So he needed to focus on process more than outcome is another way of saying that, right? And as I was explaining it to him, I was like, you know, so here's the thing. Sometimes you do have those lightning moments where it just comes together. And that's great when that happens. And the work that matters the most to you sometimes is slow. It's incredibly slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it's slow, but it's magical at the same time. It's not like just sitting in the background. So the, the trick is when you're a creative person, is finding those, um, I like to call them catalytic moments, that do... Um, get you to actually express what you know and get get rid of all the demons and the, everything like that's going to keep you from expressing what you know so you, we need those catalytic moments at the same time we've got to make space and understanding for the slow magic that's happening in the background and realizing that there is no timetable on that right right
1: um, well you know I, I love that boy I, I don't know if you've settled on that phrasing but slow magic does capture it. now let me let me tell you an interesting story so as you know and and People who read the book will soon come to learn. The reason I ultimately decided to put all that I was seeing, or the patterns that I was seeing, in a book, came in great part from my interviews with MacArthur Fellows. So, I had started this project to, to inter, that ended up being interviews with nearly seventy MacArthur Fellows. And again, for, for those who who are saying, "Gosh, I, that sounds familiar," these are the people that that get what has. Uh, broadly become known as the Genius Award. It's given by the MacArthur Foundation. It is a fellowship that you cannot apply for. it's bestowed upon you and it's the only award given for creativity not creativity in technology, not creativity in the arts creativity in general. It's not even given for what you've accomplished. But for the unique unique way that you're coming at what you do, thinking about things, and what you might accomplish. So it was in these conversations with MacArthur fellows that what I realized is all the things you and I are talking about are gee if we if we could uh, get really philosophical about creativity, you know, what What would we say? And it becomes this, inevitably, it becomes a bit of a highlight reel of headlines and tools and tactics and things like that. And what I realized in these conversations with MacArthur Fellows, who in my mind are the people on the front lines, they're the practitioners of creativity. They're not trying to be the theorists. They're, they're actually using that creative capacity that every one of us has. What I realized in those conversations was, Sometimes it's just the awareness of that context and the awareness of some of the things you can try, but then the letting go of it that actually allows you to be creative. So I'll I'll tell you this interesting story. One of the people that I interviewed is a gentleman by the name of Rick Scafidio. And Rick is... An architect uh, and a designer. And he has this wonderful firm up in New York. And one of the many incredible things they've created is the High Line. If you've ever been to New York, they converted about 20 to 25 blocks of an old uh, elevated freight rail into like the hanging gardens of Babylon. It's absolutely uh, amazing. When I first contacted Rick, he said, Sure, I'd be happy to talk about creativity. And about three days later, he called me back and he said, I think I'm going to have to cancel. So I quickly called him and said, can you at least tell me why? And his answer was, I don't want to talk about lightning strikes. So here's the idea you were pointing to, that, that not only it, does creativity come in these big bursts and, and there's even the belief that it's fully formed or that it's valuable in its first version, but that it comes big at all is such a mythology around creativity. And what Rick did not want to talk about was something that would perpetuate that mythology. Instead, what he wanted to say, it goes back to something you were saying earlier. Creativity is an accumulation. So it's all these smaller things that come together. And I know you're familiar with Steven Johnson's book, Where Do mm-hmm. Good Ideas Come From? Well, he looked back over, literally over centuries, and looked at the, the key innovations that moved human beings forward in one way or another, uh, everything from ideas to things he covered. And what he found was that, in fact, they are this accumulation. They did not birth themselves in one, one fell swoop. Instead, they were ideas that came together. And if you read the letters or you read the writings of the people who came up with these things, Isaac Newton being a perfect example, they go out of their way to say that they're standing on the shoulders of others, that they've borrowed ideas from here and there, and we choose to ignore that because we love this idea of a heroic journey, or at least the front part of the heroic journey we see in Hollywood movies, right? So there's a, there's a problem, and I climb to the, the top of the mountain, and I plant my flag, and everything is great. Creativity doesn't work that way, and that moment at the top of the mountain is that accumulation of all the steps that that get you to the top. So, it was conversations with people like Rick and thinking about the facts that people like Steven Johnson have uncovered that made me start to look at, okay, well, what really is creativity and how can we lead ourselves towards that accumulation that at some point becomes the big idea. And I want to I want to share one concept with you that was put forth by another MacArthur fellow that I spoke with, but Steven Johnson also spoke with. His name is Stu Kaufman and the concept that Stu puts forward is this idea of the adjacent possible. And I would bet money that you not only know about it, but you probably talked about it at some point. But mm-hmm. it's this whole idea of sometimes the biggest ideas, the biggest moves in your thinking, and eventually the biggest breakthroughs come from just moving to the edges of what you know and to, edges, to the edges of the space you know, and at the very least peering over, but maybe crossing that border. And Stu's concept is this. Anytime you do that, you can't help but see things differently. Whatever's on the other side of that border in that quote-unquote foreign land is going to be new. It's going to present something different to you. Number two, when you look back at the world you know or you come back into it, you can't help but look at it differently. And number three, according to Stu, and this is the part I love, when you make that move when and especially when you get in that practice of exploring the adjacent possible you actually make the possible bigger than one side of the border or the other side of the border but if you think about that it is such a simple thing all you're doing is going to your edges and not taking a moon leap not wait, waiting for a lightning strike you're just looking over and exploring and i think that's one of the biggest insights we could all have and one of the biggest habits we could form as it relates to creativity
0: Absolutely, um, and I think the challenge, much like um, the other fellow mentioned, is that when we when we talk largely about creativity, we think about the explosions, we think about the big hits, we think about the rebels, we think about all of what I would say are actually the outlier occasions.
1: Yes, right? yes, and
0: we don't look at what's normal. Like what's what what's normal? And when you when you ask people hyper creative people what their normal day looks like, it is not this lightning burst, like everything happens. It's a lot of confusion, right? It's a lot of stupefaction. It's a lot of wondering. It's a lot of like uncertainty, right? It's yes. a lot of just this mess that sounds suspiciously like work, right? Both emotional and otherwise, right? Yes. And, I, and I think part of the challenge, in, and I sense this from my academic background, is that there's so much pressure on novelty, Mm-hmm. like to to say something new and different and something that nobody else has said that you spend all of this time trying to figure out how to say something new and say something different yeah um rather than saying you know what what is this convergence of this topic and this other topic or what's this 1% difference mm-hmm. right but really, when we think about it, it's the 1% difference in which careers are made of, right? Um, and when we th- whether we think about music and, and the different ways that people blend genres into some new thing, right? Like we can go back in time and there was no such thing as jazz. There was no such thing as blues. There was no such thing as hip-hop. There was no such thing as dubstep. Like whatever it is, and all of a sudden it's this confluence of different things coming together and we've got this new form all mm-hmm. of a sudden, right? It seems new. But it is just that mixing of, um, I'll pick hip, hip hop here, right? It, it's taking some 70s R&B record, right? And getting the loop from that and overdubbing it with some lyrics and you put it together and you get this new funky sound, right? Um, and that, that starts the basis of what we know as hip hop now. Yeah. As blues is the same, right? Um, and so I, I think what I would want to pull out from that when fusing the adjacent possible um, confusing sort of slow magic is a lot of times when you're sitting there trying to figure out what's my big idea? Mm-hmm. Um, what, how do I go forward? One of the best ways to go into that is actually not so much focus on yourself, mm-hmm. but to immerse yourself in the work in the field, right? To immerse yourself in what's there and not just your field. I, I like to think about it this way. Take a Venn diagram, like two Venn diagrams. Um, perfect tool for creativity here, right? Um, you have one Venn diagram that's all the stuff you know and that you're good at, right? Yes. And you have another Venn diagram of stuff you're interested in but not familiar with. Yes. Where those two intersect is where your breakthrough is likely to happen.
1: Yep. It's interesting that you say that. So, there's this gentleman that not too many people know about and, and more should. His name, is, his name was Arthur Kessler. And Arthur Kessler wrote this enormous tome, you know, 800 pages or more called um, uh, The the Act of Creativity or the, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm even blanking on it now. But what you're talking about is the key concept that came out of that. What Kessler said is, okay, in his time, people looked at creativity and they said, gee, it only happens in the arts, And that was his beginning point for saying, What? How how can you possibly say that? The creative act is something that we all know, even if we don't label it as such. So he focused on this this very interesting, very um, everyday idea of the aha moment, right? And what he said ultimately was, Look, those moments happen in multiple ways. There's the aha moment of art. When you look at some beautiful sculpture, painting, or you read some beautiful work, or you listen to a a beautiful hip-hop song, right? And you have that moment of, yes, I I feel that. I wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have put it together myself that way. But yes, he said, in in science, there's the same thing. It's the aha moment, the eureka moment in the bathtub is, is what we tend to think of. But he then, interestingly, to try to open our minds up to say, it's everywhere. He said, well, it happens in humor, too. And he called that the ha-ha moment. And in each case, he was talking about your Venn diagram. He was talking about intersections. And what he said is that these ideas that break us through into a new way of thinking, they may not be the idea for an iPod, but they break us through the thinking that leads to the iPod and iTunes and the iPhone and everything else happen when one plane, which is what you know, hits another plane, which is something new or unexpected. And that new or unexpected could be even in an area that you already know, but you wouldn't put it together with the first one. You wouldn't cross those circles to make that that first Venn diagram. Or it could be something completely different, another field, which I highly recommend. All of these MacArthur fellows I talk to, they're all polymaths. They, they live and think and explore and ask questions across all sorts of fields, not just the ones that are on their door or on their business card so it's this whole idea of putting yourself in more places where you can have these intersections these moments that are unexpected and see something different that is one of the easiest things that any one of us can do to move ourselves forward it's you know it's kind of like the old uh, baseball analogy expression, the more at-bats you have, the more times you come to the plate, the higher your percentage of hits is likely to be. And the same thing turns out to be true for creativity. The more you allow yourself to come to that edge, explore that adjacent possible, and, and encounter those intersections, the more creative, you, you just can't help but be more creative if, if you allow those kinds of things. Now, here's the twist if you are looking for those intersections in a formulaic way, or you're expecting them to solve your immediate problem the way you think it needs to be solved, come on, you and I both know that's unlikely to happen. That's why I think of those moments when they're when they're genuine as purposeful accidents. You're going into that zone purposefully, but what comes out of it? could be completely accidental, most likely will be. And whether it means a lot today or it means a lot five years from now, as all a whole bunch of those moments accumulate, who can say, right? But it's, it's kind of like, uh, your, your comments about these very heroic creators. I always remember, um, what tennis star Arthur Ashe said. I mean, he he broke the color barrier for men's tennis. Mm-hmm. There were female uh, uh, African Americans before that who did it, but he was very well known. Somebody who really came into the public eye and the most humble person that you could ever hear from. And he said, um, you know, this whole idea of heroism. True heroism is remarkably sober and very undramatic, and that really is true. So. If it's not that, if it's not running out and being like the, the Hollywood script, what is it? It's something as simple as allowing yourself to fall into that space where you can have these intersections and these purposeful accidents.
0: Yeah, and I think that you know we, we're both really huge component or proponents and advocates for community and the criticality of community,
1: mm-hmm. right? And
0: so there are different ways about um, there are different ways you can get yourself into a place where these happy accidents happen. Um, probably the easiest way is to interact and have a community of other people who have varied interest because they're, you know, we're walking libraries in a way. We're two mavens, obviously speaking, right? So it's, it's odd sure. to think in terms of people as walking libraries, but we really are, right? Um, we have this interesting combinations of of passions and interests and expertises, right? And when you're in a community of polymaths, whether they're, you know, creative giant community, whatever community you're in, you can't help but stumble over some new way of thinking about something because that other person's thinking about it. They've got some synthesis, you've got some new part. And if you're just curious and really excited about what people are into. It's like every day it is, you have, um, I'm going to, I'm going to steal this one, for, or I'm going to share this one. This one's from Marissa Brackey. She used to talk about epiphanets, right? Uh, yeah. Not yeah. epiphanies, but epiphanets, right? I like that term. And so you get these little mini epiphanets every day and it's just like, they add up over time. And, um, you know, we think of, um, I think we actually do have a post um, about accretion, right? Creative accretion, right? We, we tend to think of creativity as this explosive, disruptive thing, right? Mm-hmm, Just mm-hmm. Creativity out of nowhere. But really, it's accretion. And accretion is the process of which we, small parts add it to something, make it larger, like a snowball rolling downhill. You mm-hmm. know, the, the first little bit of snow that, that started that, it's not very significant, but by the time it rolls... And adds this and adds that, and it gets sticks and twigs and mud, and all this type stuff. and it becomes it, at the end state it can become a very an avalanche, yes right um, we notice the avalanche right that 's the remarkable event that catches our attention, sure, um, but we don 't notice those little epiphanets, those little conversations here and there, that little reading this book and then reading that other book, and then jumping on a podcast and then talking to this that pulls this all together um, and I think that's where, um, in my experience, a a powerful community of conversants is super useful for those catalytic moments that I talked about, because I think when we sit down in whatever our creative mode is, yes, we will start to either self-censor or we will start to really over-evaluate the stuff that's coming through through us at that point. But when you're talking to a friend, there's this easy breezy, we're just playing with ideas, nothing serious here. Mm-hmm. That's where the magic for me inevitably happens, right? I'm like, oh, that's the thing. I need to go back and chase the thing. Like I would have never come up with that, right? Yes. Not for this conversation with Larry. Um, and so, you know, I'm just going to phrase it that way as far as the criticality of community. But what else do you have on community and, and, and co-creation and um, yeah, hit us with that.
1: Sure. Well, and, and you, you just took exactly the word that I was going to put out there, but I'm not, not the least bit surprised that you put it out there. Creativity is a co-creation. Ultimately, the things that we associate with creativity, those outputs that come in the end are a result of a co-creation, whether we're working with those people directly or we're borrowing their ideas, their observations and their insights and then quilting them together with our own. We never do this alone. And every creator that you could point to. So for the first book I interviewed several hundred entrepreneurs and people around entrepreneurship. Every single one of them will tell you they are not solo operators. There's no lone ranger thing here. Okay? At least the ones that we want to talk about who actually created value and more often than not value that that lasted, that had, that had impact. So I would say, first of all, that, that co-creation is the thing and, and knowing that makes you want to be drawn towards a community, but you have to be ready for that interaction. So what I try to think about is how can you get in the creative habit individually before you start to become part of that co-creation? I'll give you some very simple things. Just pausing to take notice of what's happening around you. If somebody's listening to, to your show and they hear an interesting insight, even if they're just searching your your website and they're going through the, the archive of podcasts and you do this nice job of summarizing the points, and they'll be somewhere between three and five points, just think of 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 being a listener and reading one of those and saying, Ha, huh, I never thought about that before. Pausing long enough. To think about it a little bit longer, to not just dismiss it, is one of the best ways that you start to fine-tune yourself to be creative. If on top of that, you're open to that little thing that you noticed meaning something more than where you would immediately file it, Maybe, maybe you flip it around to say, could it mean the opposite of what I think it is? Just little habits like that are the kinds of things that when you pause... When you take notice, you're open up to a different message or a different opportunity that might come with it. If you go one step further and you, you apply this mindset of inquiry to what you're noticing, like, why didn't I notice that before? Have I seen it anywhere else? Uh, questions along those lines, even just you know wacky questions, just the, the act of asking starts to get you. To pause longer, to notice more, and to be more open. So, to me, that's the preparation that every one of us individually needs to do to be able to come to the dynamic of a co creation. Now, here's, here's another interesting thing. You gave a great example of how we can become part of more of those co creations by not just staying in our own playground, but going out into other people's playgrounds, whether it's direct like where we spend our time and who we spend it with, or it's indirect. You you talk, you know, I know you read between five and 15 books every month. Okay. Now maybe we're not all going to read that many books, but every time you go into a new book, you're entering somebody else's mind. So that's a way of starting to stretch out and use your own creative habits by interacting with other people. But Let's, let's assume that you're somebody who has an organization and is incredibly busy with that and you don't have the time to read the books and you don't have the time to go have the, the actual physical interactions. What could you do differently within the group that you're already working with? And I, and I want to share a, a wonderful example from another MacArthur fellow, Deborah Meyer, who's an education reformer. She uses a combination of what I just talked about and in, in what she calls the five habits of the mind. And these are five questions that she and her teams use to either look at something new and test whether or not it's worth pursuing, to look at something old and say, could it be better, or to look at something problematic and say, is there really a problem? Can we fix it? And how would we fix it? And these are the five habits or five questions she asks. The first is, how do you know what you know? (laughs) This goes back to the very beginning of our conversation. Asking that question, how do you know what you know, is often the first thing that tips you off that you're thinking in a stuck way. And you could be thinking in a different way. Or if it's a new idea, how do you know it? Is is it tied to other things? Which really leads to her second question and habit, is there a pattern? When there are patterns, they're usually trying to tell you something, so they're worth looking at and they're worth asking if they exist. Her third habit is to ask any kind of what if question based on what you know and what the pattern is. What if we did this? What if it was different? It's it's a prompt question, right? The fourth uh, habit and question is, is there another way of looking at it? There is nothing like flipping something around and taking a different vantage point. And the last and the most important question is, who cares? Because all those leading four habits are wonderful no matter what. But when we're talking about investing limited time, limited resources, our passion, whatever it might be, when we're going after what Dan Pink says we're all after, a sense of mastery and purpose and autonomy and having impact, if we're not asking who cares the chances are that it's going gonna, it's gonna to land flat. So for me, Charlie, it's a mix of those things. It's that recognition that creativity is a co-creation, preparing yourself for that, and then using multiple ways to not just invite others in, but to invite yourself into other situations. And and if you think about all those things that that I was just talking about, they're not hard. It's just a matter of making them a habit of doing them.
0: Well, it's a matter of, I mean... This is the tools and context conversation again, right? We can have those five sort of tools, those five ways of thinking about things, but knowing that we're in the context in which we need to ask them, right? That's the trick, right? And so I'm along the similar things like uh, there are two really powerful questions I've learned to ask sometimes verbal or sometimes explicitly, but other times when I'm just observing something. And one of those questions is, is what are the givens? Mm -hmm. What are the givens in this conversation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just by givens, I mean, what are the things that we all just assume to be true, that we all just is the foundation for anything that we're talking about? These are the givens, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing I've learned, and this one is actually in conversation, is um, three words. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. And the reason, the reason I tell me more has become such a powerful tool. I use it on the show a lot. Right. Tell me more about that. Right. Is I've learned for me, it actually gives me a moment to pause without hearing something and saying, I've got to have some response to that. I've got to add to that.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: It allows me to say, you know, I'm really interested in that. Tell me more. Like, and then I get to read more and I can continue to do that. And so sometimes with teammates, they'll be going through something like, tell me more. Yes. And, and, Especially if it's done curiously, right? Um, and it's a way because what happens is, as people tell you more and more, um, especially if you've got in mind of like, what are the givens here?
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: You can start to figure out like, wait a second, she just named this given? What about this type of thing? So on and so forth. And so those two questions, I mean, there are different habits of the mind, obviously, but um, I've learned, we, we had one in a board meeting I was at, with the, white, at the Wayfinding Academy last night, right? We, there was, there's been a given that, that's been a possible hindrance to our growth. Right. And um, my uh, fellow board member Jefferson um, brought up the great question. He, he said, like, this has been like, this has been an ideological given. I want to question that, right? I want to push that because I think this could be a great place to grow. And a great conversation ensued just because he had the audacity to bring up the fact that this was a given and start to ask essentially some of the questions um, that you prompted before that. Like, you know, is there a different way of doing this? What if sure. we did this, right? Just wonderful, wonderful thing. But those two questions are those two sort of statements um, and or questions are really great ways to also get into that co-creative mindset. Um, Go ahead.
1: Well, and and think of, so I'm now like, I can visualize myself in that meeting and and it being the fly on the wall and, and watching that dynamic. Here's an interesting thing. So people are often fearful about exercising their creative capacity. In the extreme, they don't even believe that we're all creative, which we are. Evolutionarily, there's broad agreement that we are. Now, out of practice, that's a different thing. And that, that creates a distinction in the mind between the creative genius on the one end, which is just somebody who's in the practice of using their creative capacity their way. By the way, we're not going to replicate them. And then on the other stream, extreme, it's the person who doesn't believe they're creative. But think about what uh, your colleague's name was Jefferson. Did I get that right? So when Jefferson asks this question, the biggest fear in the room in the first half second is that he's calling out something that is either the sacred cow, which pe- some people are going to then need to feel they have to defend, or he's calling out the, the elephant in the room, which is we all know that this is a problem or a hindrance in some way, but we've all been afraid to talk about it because we're afraid the conversation's going to be uncomfortable. but As soon as that conversation opens up, it does not mean that it's necessarily going to lead to a change in that being a priority of the organization. If it does, it doesn't mean that everything you've been doing is going to be abandoned overnight. It's that accumulation again. But the willingness to ask those questions can at the very least confirm that the way you're, you're already doing things is the right way to do it, that the way you're doing it maximizes the value that you're trying to get out of it. It's a confirmation, if nothing else. And if it reveals something that's new or an opportunity or a problem you should deal with why wouldn't you want to address that earlier? So I think sometimes it's the way we enter a room like that. And when somebody boldly asks that question, how we react, I think of, the, uh, I think of this in terms of the three acts of creation when you're going to do something new. The, the first act is remembering that you have a choice and choosing to do any one of these things to to stop and notice things a little bit longer or follow that sense of fit or misfit. Uh, It's the, the choice to ask a question like that or engage in a conversation like that. Just reminding ourselves that we have that choice, even at the individual level, is really important. The second act of creation is reaction. How we react to whatever comes back is what determines whether we go forward or not, even if the result is terrific. If we just rest on our laurels and say, yay, that's the end of it, there's no way we're mining the full potential of the questions we've started to ask or the things we're we're trying to explore. And sometimes it doesn't come back perfect or good. And that's where the third act of creation comes in, and that's improvisation. And you know what? We're all really good at this. We may not give ourselves credit for being improvisers, but whether we're parents who have to improvise with how to raise children or we're, we're just individual adults with friends and we put our foot in our mouth and we have to find a way to recover from it or we're workers or or leaders within a business and we have to figure out where the heck to go next, we're improvising all the time. But just knowing that we have that choice to get into this creative dynamic, that our reaction is something we ought to pay attention to and maybe be flexible on, and that we are capable of improvising, I think it takes a question like Jefferson's and opens up the world, even if when you leave the room, it doesn't look any different that night.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you, you, there's so much there that I want to unpack for a second, but I've been on the board with Jefferson long enough to know what he's up to. Right. Um, he, he's posing the question this year for action two years from now. Oh, wow. Right. Um, and I, again, he, he's a brilliant board mate for so many different reasons, right? And, but I'm like, okay, I know, I know the game that's being played here because through small conversations and through seeding this, there's going to start that conversation, but it's having that strategic patience to know that we don't have to have a resolution tonight, yes, right? But I'm, gonna pro, I'm going to question this now so that two years from now, when we're thinking about growth things, it's no longer an elephant in the room. Right, we've already started to think about it a little bit more. So brilliant, right? Um, so I always have to give them kudos after board meetings, which is one of the reasons they're so fun. Um, but I wanted to go back to the three acts of creation. Great, great piece from the book. That was one of those where I was I was really pausing and it's like okay, like let's um, for lack of word words, let's actionize this. Let's let's make this more mm-hmm. practical. And what I noticed is like okay, I, I started kind of doing an array of creative people that I know. I'm like that person is a brilliant improviser. That's what they do best, right That person is a great reactionary right mm. um, that person is great at just coming up with the idea themselves right mm-hmm. so sorry' like, where am I on this matrix right and, and fit. but the thing that I wanted to say there is if you know those three modes of creativity, you can start to say like, okay, improvisation is a really um, so i'm gonna pause here. what comment in the headline or comment in there is like you know the thing is is that we've um we've lauded the first act so much over the other two. Yes. Right. That um, many people who are great at the other two don't actually count it. Right. So what if we put them all on the same playing field?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And say, okay, okay, um, this is a, a mode of creativity. What can I, and I'm an improviser. What can I do to create those catalytic moments for myself so that I improvise more?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh-huh. What can I do to create those kind of moments so that I'm reading, for instance, I'm a, I do a lot of reaction. Like if I don't have something to react to, I actually become creatively inert. And I know this about myself,
1: uh-huh.
0: um, which means that part of what I have to or need to do as a practice is to expose myself to things that I either disagree with or that spoke that, that really hit a strong reaction for me. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and, you know, there are other people, you know, really riffing off Cal Newport's deep work, right? There are other people who are the creators that just really need that that quiet space to generate something, right? Yes. But if you put me in that quiet space for too long, I actually don't create anything. I've learned yes. that about myself, right? Um, and so, that that's just what I want to say. Taking that framework for, for listeners and kind of putting you on there. And I'm going to ask... Um, Larry, I'm going to ask you again to go through that since I'm prompted an application question. Um, but just really think where you are on that matrix and what you might do um, to lean into that mode of creativity as opposed to um, really valorize another type that's not, that you're not as strong at. So what were the three again?
1: Yeah. So the, the three acts of creation are choice, reaction, and improvisation, right? Mm-hmm. And the choice is, is really choosing to engage in the first place. Mm-hmm. The reaction is there's something that's going to happen on the back end of your, your choosing to do something, even to think a certain way or explore a certain question, right? Be ready for anything. That's where the openness comes in. And the improvisation is, is the good stuff, right? Because it says if you have to improvise, you're encountering something. That isn't quite like what you've encountered before. If it was, you'd just follow some formulaic or knee jerk uh, uh, approach to it and, and be done with your day. But when you get to play with whatever comes next and you don't worry about how you might put your foot in your mouth or stub your toe or whatever it is, you think of it as having that play element to it. That actually becomes the fun part. So, So this is interesting here. All of us. Have those abilities. All of us are um, forced into those acts even when we don't choose. You know, you know the old saying, when you don't choose, you're choosing, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And there's going to be a reaction that you're going to have no matter what. And as I said before, we're all improvising in one way every day, uh, one way or another every day. We just may not think to apply it elsewhere. So, here's here's what I think about. It's It's not just um, trying to identify which of those acts you're the strongest at, because the answer to that is going to change with time and circumstances. You might be a terrific improviser in your professional life, but not so hot in your personal relationships in terms of improvising, maybe because you have too much emotionally vested in it. I don't know what it is. In some Places you might be an incredible decision maker. You know, I say it's with, again, within your profession, but. Uh, which which jar of pickles should I pick at the grocery store leaves you dumbfounded for three minutes in front of the shelf, you know? That's so amazing. these things change all the time and they change among groups. The person who's the excellent improviser in one situation might be less so in another. This is all a good thing. This is all also why it all has to be thought of as a, a bit playing with this, you know? So I, I've heard you talk several times in your, in your interviews about how we learn differently, how we process information differently. You could expand that out to the concept of multiple intelligences and the way that we absorb things either, you know, in an auditory sense or a kinesthetic sense or whatever. We might be stronger at letters or numbers or, or visuals or something of that nature. But Howard Gardner, one of the MacArthur fellows that I spoke with, who came up with this idea of multiple intelligences, he has said over the past 35 years and continues to say so, we all have all of these forms of intelligence it doesn't mean we don't find greater comfort with a certain one or two it doesn't mean that we don't lean towards practicing one or two more than the others or are forced to do that by the way we're, we're taught and educated or asked to work in our in our work environments but we all have all of them and the same is true of these three acts of creation choice reaction and improvisation we all have all of these so uh, a MacArthur fellow that you know I reference a, a lot in this book because I just had such fabulous conversations with Liz Lerman, who is a choreographer by label, but she's so much more than that. She would suggest that if we were talking about these these acts or your different intelligences, to not fall into the, the pattern of thinking of them as a hierarchy, where this one is our best and this one is our worst way down here at the bottom. Mm -hmm. She said when she first started to learn about dance, that dance and art were thought of in a hierarchy. So at the top, you had high art, which was just the way some people defined and prioritized a certain type of dance. And at the bottom, you might have, you know, and that might be ballet, uh, academy ballet. And at the bottom, you might have Michael Jackson's thriller video. Well, for one group, that might be the hierarchy. For another, like me, for instance, I might completely flip that. What Liz says is don't do that. Instead, lay that hierarchy on its side. Make it a horizontal and think about constantly moving between the poles. So when I'm really good at improvisation, why not go there, but don't forget to come back to working on the reaction side or the choice side. If I'm a really good auditory learner, work on the visual to see what it might tell me, how it might inform me. This is all about playing with your potential. And we all have so much potential that we really should be playing with it. That's what's gonna make us creative and productive.
0: Yeah, I mean, creativity is just um, catalyzing and channeling potential, right? Absolutely. At, at its core, I mean, that's really what what we do, and and as a species, that's what we've done since the beginning. What's the potential? Like, how can I make this situation a little bit better, a little bit um, a little bit different, so on and so forth. And so, it's core. Um, you know, this is reminding me of the of, of my many conversations with Todd on the show. Right? Is that when you look at what when you go to the core of what it means to be human. We find that like there's these things we can't get away from, like expressing, um, articulating, or manifesting potential is just what we humans do, right? Um, and creativity is just one of the vehicles by which we do that. Now, um, Larry, I'm looking at the time and I'm like, oh man, we're going to have to wrap this, this up. Uh, we're going to have plenty of conversations, but as the guest today, um, you get to leave our listeners with a challenge or an invitation. Hmm. so it could be based upon today's conversation or something that you just think is a really good prompt. I'm going to leave it open, but what would you like to leave our listeners with as far as a challenge or an invitation?
1: Well, it's interesting just by happenstance, you were describing the language of man and you were saying, look, it's, it's not like reading John Stuart Mill or, 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 uh, Kant or something like that. Interestingly enough, uh, I'm going to put my challenge in the form of a quote from John Stuart Mill. And it's a very simple one. He said that the perpetual obstacle to human advancement is custom. And I love that thought. And the challenge is for each of your listeners to think about what are your customs what are the things that make you do whatever you do in a more formulaic way than not and, and a less framework way than not? What is the custom that might be the obstacle to your own advancement? And you know, as as you're listening to me, I'm not picking a category of anybody's life. I'm not even telling you where you should end up or what that exercise should look like. But I think it's true that we get into certain habits and don't think about the potential we have to make the choice to refine those habits, improvise a little, and maybe come up with something completely different, maybe even better.
0: Larry, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. and I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Oh, me too, that
1: happens. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Larry. What custom or given um, is in your world that's making you or prompting you to create in a certain way, to do what you do in a certain way? How might you challenge that, question it, improvise it, react to that, to create differently, to create better, to create more prolifically, but fundamentally to create? Until next time, stand tall. If you're digging the Creative Giant Show, I'd really appreciate it if you leave a rating or review on iTunes. If you're not familiar with how to do this, there's a walkthrough available on the podcast page on ProductiveFlourishing.com. Thanks.